0: We're continuing into Acts chapter 5, and we'll uh, be verses 12 through 14 this morning. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the church or to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women. How does a person get saved? Well, the common answer among evangelicals, many evangelicals is, well, they decide. They decide to have Jesus as their savior. The common phraseology is, I made a decision for Jesus. Or, in other way, at times, of say, I accepted the offer. Why not? You were asked to make a decision. Now, while this may be partially true, and I emphasize partially, because These statements that are made, I decided, I accepted, are statements of effect, but they are not statements of cause. It's no different than arriving at a destination and someone saying, how did you get here? And you say, well... the plane landed and after it stopped I got off to merely say I decided or I accepted not only puts the emphasis and can we say the glory on the acceptor so we have to go to the source the first cause the reason for the action. The cause of the effect, well, there could be a slight truth in someone saying, I chose Christ today. The first question we could probably ask is, and, and we would re- rejoice, we rejoice with everyone who comes to the Lord. There's, it's not like we want to grill them and make them feel bad about that. We want to rejoice in that. But part of the rejoicing is, is, is knowing what happened beforehand. And the first question we could ask to someone who said, well, I chose Christ today. You could ask, well, why didn't you do that yesterday? Why didn't you do it last week or last year or the year before that? It would seem that any great event that comes into our lives, whether it be good or bad, one of the first questions that usually comes to mind is, why? Why? Why me? Why now? How did it happen? But in salvation particularly, we must ask the question, how did I come to believe? How is it that one day I didn't believe and today I do believe? How is it that one day I spurn Christ, today I embrace him? How is it that a day or so ago I didn't, comp- I didn't even worry about my soul? And now I know that my soul is safe in him. We might answer by stating the means. How did you come to believe? Well, the means that God used. Someone preached, someone taught. Somehow the manner, the gospel was brought to me in word. To that we might ask, that is great. Had you not ever heard it before? And some of them might say, oh yes, I heard it several times. Well, why is it now the fifth time that you hear it? You embrace it. Turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. <clears throat> We're we'll going to begin reading at verse 1. <clears throat> now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There you go. The, those, they were the legalists of the moment. Obviously, he, he or his parents did something for him to be in this particular position. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Pay attention to that answer. That the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. And he said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, notice question, how were your eyes opened? See, a great thing has come to pass. He who is born blind now sees. So what's the first question he is asked? How did it happen? How did it take place? This is not only, here they are asking, how were your eyes open? Now, if we look at verses 13, they they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now, it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. The Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said, He put clay in my eyes, I washed and I see. It's the first question the Pharisees ask How do you see? How is it that you're seeing now? They ask his parents. Verse 20 his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son. And that he was born blind. Born blind. And so they questioned the son again. Verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind. And, and said to him. Give glory. Give God the glory. Isn't that in? Give God the glory. A miracle has taken place here. It's the first thing you need to do. Give God glory. The glory. We know that this man is a sinner. Jesus couldn't have done that. He's a sinner in their eyes. So verse 6, then he said to them again. They said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already. You did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? do you also want to become his disciples? What about this healing? The man was born blind. We're told that. The second thing. Who was responsible for the preparation of this man receiving his sight? Jesus. Jesus. Verses 6 and 7. Who is responsible? That is, who caused this blind man to see? The Lord. Now someone might ask, but isn't it true that the man did what Jesus told him to do? And yes, we'd have to answer, that is true. But what made him obedient is the next question. Someone has just put dirt in your blind eyes. Now, maybe the first thing you want to do is go wash it out of there. But he says, go. And he tells him exactly where to go to have it done. He doesn't go to some other place. and he say, here, someone get a picture and get this out of my eyes. How is it that he found what Jesus said and commanded to not be a matter of disputation and debate? I mean, he could have just said, I'm blind and you just put dirt in my eyes. How am I supposed to believe you? But instead, we find here in Acts chapter 5 or in John chapter 9 and verse 7, so he went, so he went. Now again, someone might say, after an incident like that, well, you know I was blind, but I washed my eyes and now I see. Now, would that be honest? Yeah, to a degree it would be, but only partially so. All of Jesus' miracles have a spiritual lesson contained in them. Lame and crippled. That's our spiritual state, we will not go to him in our natural state. Blind. In our natural state, we are blind to the truth. Deaf. In our natural state, we don't hear. You know, hear his words. We don't hear his voice. Raising the dead. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses. Every single one of the miracles had the spiritual connection and truth underlying them. In our own confession of faith, in chapter 10, again, we don't hide what we believe, it's there in print for all people to see. We don't have this book and then a little book that contains the real stuff that we don't want anybody to see. It's all here. And in chapter 10 in paragraph 1, those whom God hath predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call them, effectively, to call them by his word and spirit out of the state of sin and death in which they were and are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving to them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them so that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. Being made willing by His grace. Effectual calling, it's another way of saying irresistible grace. And that teaches us that the Holy Spirit will always bring His people to faith, saving faith. And He will use the general or common means of grace in which to do it. But within them, He will work irresistibly in the lives of sinners. It will be the Holy Spirit applying invincibly the word of truth. <clears throat> As we noted what it said in chapter 10 of the confession is telling us something that is often misunderstood. <clears throat> it's not that he grabs hold of someone and drags them all away, kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. But as the confession tells us, yet so as they come most freely. Being made willing by his grace. The will has been made new. The heart has been changed, which indeed then changes the will. You see, you've got to change the heart before you change the will. That's why we talk of salvation being receiving a new heart. Not a new will, because if you receive a new heart, guess what? The will gets changed. So we put the right order of things for understanding there. No violence is done to man's will, but rather his will is renewed. Now someone might say, and and clearly it's been brought up so many times, how do you call it irresistible grace when so many people resist? And that is a good and proper question to ask. What we are speaking of when we speak of irresistible grace, we could say it's targeted grace. Targeted. And when we come to our passage in Acts chapter 5, we see this illustrated for us. After the death of Ananias and Sapphira, we see there was great fear amongst the people. Between the apostles being arrested for proclaiming Christ. And Ananias and Sapphira are being arrested or are being killed, executed for lying to God, by God, not by Peter and James or any of the apostles. This would not be the perfect setup for bringing people into the kingdom. But verse 12 tells us that the apostles continued to do as they had been commanded. They're out on Solomon's porch. That had become a regular place of gathering as we saw also in chapter 3. Believers were coming together to meet there. And in verses 13 and 14, notice verse 13, yet none of the rest dared to join them. But the people esteemed them highly. I've seen that happen a lot this past week when they're talking about the queen who who made it a part of what she did to make clear that she believed. And all the commentators say, well, you know, her faith was very important to her. It was important to her. And you could tell by the way that they're speaking, it wasn't important to them. It, isn't that cute and quaint of the queen? She believed, she had her own faith. And this is kind of the same situation here in verse 13. These people, these Christians seem to be pretty good people, but you know, that's not for us. We're not sure about that. Yet none of the rest dared to join them. Yet when we come to verse 14, it's almost like, say, Luke, what are you doing here? Are you you contradicting yourself? Verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. wait a minute. Verse 13 said there's a group. They're not even coming near. They don't want to be near. They're speaking nicely of the Christians, but they don't want to be one themselves. Verse 14 says there's multitudes of people that are coming. What are we seeing? Well, we're seeing an illustration of the two kingdoms very clearly. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of the Lord. We see the kingdom of this earth in verse 13 kingdom of Christ in verse 14 though he is Lord over both. Verse 13 shows us that there was a portion of people who dared not join with them. They saw what took place. They heard what was said and even further they spoke well of the church. In essence what we would say they received what we call the external call. They had been placed in a place where they heard the truth of Christ. It was given to them, but it didn't go any further than here. It didn't go from here down to here. It stayed here. In fact, in many cases, it just bounced off. They received the external call, but not the internal call of the Spirit. Even though they spoke well of believers, they esteemed them highly. But at at the same time, there were those, quite a number of them, who were being effectually called, effectively, if we want to put it that way. Isaiah 45 and verse 22 gives us an example of the outward call that we are to give to every human Look unto me and be saved all you ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. That's the call that we are to give from God. Look unto him, look unto Christ and be saved. Now for nearly 300 years these words have been read and they've been spoken yet not everyone has been impacted by them. Have not They've not considered those words, nor felt compulsion by them. This is what we read in, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 51. Paul, or before we get to Paul, when we get to the other apostles as they are speaking, verse 51 You stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so to you. And so you look at that and you see, there, well, there is resistance. Yes, because all they hear, heard was the external call, the outward call. It did not come internally. The outward call will not bring men to Christ because they are dead in their sins and their trespasses. They are ruled by Satan. As Jesus said, they are of their father, the devil. Now, when we turn to Romans chapter 8, and we look at verse 29. 30 is where the focus would be but we can't we can't, go beyond, we can't do that without verse 29 notice how it begins verse 29 for whom whom he foreknew that speaks individually and foreknowledge means that it was those that he knew intimately Foreknowledge here, the word to know means here to know intimately. Those he knew beforehand. When was that? Before the world was. These he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined. These he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. These, 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 these. The ones who were called effectually, effectively by the Holy Spirit. And here's the bonus. Those he has given the inward effectual call, all will be justified that is, have a right standing before God through Christ. And all of them, all of them will be glorified. All that the Father gives to me, I, of all he gives to me, I will not lose one. No one can pry them out of my hands. I think of that for a moment. I think something says. Well, if I choose not to be saved, I can choose not to be saved after I've been saved. Well, you weren't saved in the first place, if that's what you're thinking. But then on top of that, do you think you're stronger than Christ? And if if he can be, if you can be pride out of the hand of God, what does that say about to God that you're worshiping? Well, I'm stronger than him. These he also glorified. In there, not only do you have the effectual calling, but you have the eternal security of the believer. The perseverance of the saints, as we call it. Because if he's called you and justified you, he's going to glorify you. It's going to happen. There's no changing, of course. And if we could, as believers, just grab that and get off this treadmill... And actually, start to believe God really, really loves me. These He also glorified. But see, it's all the work of God. It's what we call theologically monergistic, one sided, as opposed to the often taught synergistic. Some of you who are of somewhere near the same age area as I am. The kid's just an old. No, before there was stereo, there was minoral. (coughs) That you only had one channel to hear. When I was working at the radio station, we would get, as things were changing, we would get 45s that would come in, some minoral, some stereo. In fact, on one side, it might be minoral, And the other side, stereo, depending on the equipment that was at the radio station at the time. Because there are a lot of times that if you were trying to play a stereo 45 on a minoral equipment, there was a channel that was left off so the fellow would be singing and the backup singers weren't there, which made for an interesting sound. Salvation is monergistic. Christ does it. It is a work of God. It's not a work of God and me. It's not synergistic. But that's the way it's taught in so many places. You've got to come along and help. And as we've been talking about the Holy Spirit in the last couple of sessions and, and in, in the Vacation Bible School, if your picture of the Holy Spirit is one of an old man who needs help across the road, then you, you need help. Because you've got a terrible misunderstanding. The Holy Spirit is God. And God's never needed anybody's help. Paul would write in Galatians, Galatians 1 and verse 15, But it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. You know, if we read Ephesians chapter 2. Paul tells us what our prior condition was. Why is he telling us that? So we will appreciate what's happened. And you, he made alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Doesn't sound like you were cooperating much. Doesn't seem, dead men don't help much. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. You can be a newborn infant. You can be two, three, four, five, six, seven years old. People would be an innocent child. No. All children are sinners. They just sin in different ways, perhaps, They're not as advanced in their sinning as adults. So that's a pretty ugly picture we get there. But then in verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of what? His great love with which he loved us. even, Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You may be sitting on a pew right now, but you're also if you're in Christ, you're sitting in the heavenly places. It's a present reality. But God, if he left us to ourselves, that's the way we would stay. But instead, out of his love for us, he worked in us renewed our hearts and brought us to him. You see, that is what this great doctrine is all about. Joel Beeky wrote this, salvation is due to the spontaneous, extravagant love of God. If you are saved, it must be by the operation of God's irresistible grace in your life. It's one other place and if you notice in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 some may remember the words because we sang this quite a bit at one time but you are a chosen generation a chosen generation a royal priesthood a holy nation His own special people. The uh, King James has a peculiar people. And that is a pretty good adjective for some. A peculiar meant then particular. A particular people. His own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of him who did what? who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, if we could just grasp that ourselves and see what he has done for us and that he who began the work is the same one who's going to complete the work in us. We could actually start to relax and enjoy salvation. Wouldn't that be something? We actually enjoy being saved. Instead of being someone putting us on the treadmill and saying, you got to do this, 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 or else off the treadmill you go into oblivion. Sorry. See, only one response to our salvation. As the blind man said in John 9, I was blind, but now I see. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And I pray that you hear him today. Let's stand together for prayer.